0: Some of you who've uh, studied American history know something about the New England Primer. The New England Primer was the first reading primer designed for American colonies, uh, The colonies prior to the New England Primer tended just to bring over King James Bibles from the old country and use those in the schools to teach uh, basics of reading and writing and that sort of thing. Uh, But the colonies got to the point where they felt like they needed their own textbook in a sense. So in 1690, Boston publishers reprinted the English Protestant Tutor under the title of the New England Primer. And it included alphabetists. Uh, assistance, woodcut pictures, moral lessons, uh, and, and of course, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, or it contained Cotton Mather's Shorter Catechism, Spiritual Milk for Boston Babes. I love that title. (laughs) Uh, Famous uh, prayer, perhaps, uh, that you will be familiar with It was found in the New England Primer was, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I awake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Uh, you would be humiliated in a sense to know just how much they expected these little children to know about biblical doctrine and theology, in particular uh, the uh, the depravity of man and that sort of thing. Let me give you some examples of some of the ABCs and with the little woodcut pictures of each one of these. A, in Adam's fall we all sinned. That's A. <laughs> uh, B, uh, thy life to men this book attend. C, the cat doth play and after slay. D, a dog will bite a thief at night. Uh, F, I keep on going. F, an idle fool is whipped at school. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, G, as runs a glass, man's life doth pass. There, there, in Puritan Union, there would have been a funeral almost every other day. So they, the children were often uh, taught the, 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 the brevity of their own life. J, Job feels the rod and blesses God. K, proud Korah's troops were swallowed up. P, Peter denies his Lord and cries, You, Uriah's lovely wife, did David seek his life? May David seek his life, I'm sorry. X, Xerxes the, the great did die, and so must you and I. Now, how many of you, when you were six years old, knew who Xerxes was? Or Uriah, or Job, or Peter, for that matter. This was the New England Primer, and it was basically taught the basics of the English language so that the next generation of Christians would understand what's going on. Well, today in our brief text in 2 Thessalonians, we have something of a prayer primer. It's Paul's way of teaching the basics, in a sense, of prayer to the Thessalonians, but for all generations that followed after them in their van. So today we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, and we're going to kind of look at this as something of a primer on the great Christian discipline of prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we do come to you, Lord, recognizing that if you don't give it to us, we cannot receive it. We also recognize the stiffness of our own hearts, the shallowness of our own mind, and the corruption of our very body. So we need help. For us to be able to understand this wonderful text, God, teach us about that principle to pray. For so many, when we think about prayer, we think, what could be easier than prayer? But for those of us who have failed constantly in this discipline, we understand it may be the most difficult thing Christians are called to do. So show us in this meaty text how it is that we are to pray. Let us go to school on Paul's prayer to the Thessalonians and enjoy this as our prayer primer this morning. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. If You would turn to Second Thessalonians verses three through uh, 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 chapter three, verses one through five. I will read that text in its entirety, and we'll talk about briefly how we're going to break that down. And then go verse by verse through this wonderful passage. First, Second th- uh, Thessalonians chapter three, verses one through five. God says, the apostle Paul writes. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, that we may be rescued from from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. As we mind the depths of this precious scripture, I would encourage you to look at your home group helps that'll kind of give you a sense of a bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go with this particular text. You'll see here in verses uh, uh, 1a, we're going to look for a call for prayer. And then the content of the prayer in verses 1b through 2 And then the confidence in prayer in verses 3 through 4, and then the character of prayer in verse 5. So first of all, we look here for a call for prayer. Paul says here, he starts off, finally, brethren, pray for us. And uh, the word finally here, you may think it's kind of misplaced because he's not finished with the letter quite yet. We are in the third chapter. We'll be finished, Lord willing, in a couple of Sundays here. But finally, really probably means, and for the rest, and besides that, uh, and what remains to be said here, basically, he's switching from the subject. He's been talking about eschatology. He's been talking about the return of Jesus Christ. What's going to happen? He mentioned there's going to be a great apostasy within the church. There's going to be a rise of an ultimate super evil antichrist. But now he's trying to get into some of the practical aspects. With that in mind, how do we live in the light of Christ's return? That's the theme throughout First and Second Thessalonians. So what are we supposed to do about that? We really can't do much about the coming of Antichrist. And we certainly can't do much about the return of Christ. But there is a responsibility that we have as Christians while we're still on this planet... And he brings up, first of all, this whole topic of prayer here. He says, um, he, says he, he calls them brethren again. This is the six of seven times. He, is just, he has a passionate love for the, for the brothers and sisters in Christ in the Thessalonians. And the, and the Thessalonica. And then he asks for prayer here. This, is, this idea of prayer is in the present tense. So he's saying continually to pray. Make this prayer your constant pattern. Now, y'all, if there was ever a super Christian. If there was ever a man who was profoundly gifted, profoundly educated, schooled in the greatest schools of the day, it was the Apostle Paul. And what's he doing? The Apostle Paul is writing to these brand new baby Christians he spent a few weeks with, and he's saying, would you please pray for me? Would you please pray for me? Why does he do that? Because he believes in the power of prayer, and he needs prayer. With all that giftedness, with all that talent, with all that education, that he, he literally, he didn't go to seminary. Jesus taught him in the desert for three years, okay? His, like his professor was Jesus. I need your prayers. I need your prayers. That's what he's saying. So how important do you think prayer is to the Apostle Paul? How important should it be to us? I mean, I think that's really the emphasis we want to consider here. The greatest Christian that ever lived is not so proud to say he is in desperate need of prayer. He also believes in the power of prayer. Notice that. He understands the importance of prayer. He knows that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, but he will not bring it to pass without perhaps the agency of prayer. He foreordains the end. He also foreordains the means. So you have a responsibility to pray for those ends and through the means of prayer here. Of course, this is a common theme with Paul in Romans as he was uh, closing up that wonderful uh, book of Romans in chapter 15. He says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So he's asking the same thing from the Romans as well. It's just, this is the heartfelt desire of every pastor. It's my hope for you. I, would, I hate the, the, the thought of me standing up here on Sunday mornings without having your prayers. Uh, prayers during the week, prayers for preparation. You might consider right now uh, our own Jack Stoffer is preaching at Young Memorial ARP Church at the 11, I think 11 o'clock, 1115. I would encourage you to pray for Jack, uh, you know, even during the service. It's okay if you take a little pause of paying attention to the sermon and pray for Jack. Pray that he would preach the word of God, that... Uh, uh, and, that, uh, and that it would be received, and people would even get converted or, and certainly sanctified. You ought to pray they don't steal them away from us. <laughs> he's, he's encouraged them before, and you know, remember when we went through First Thessalonians, he encouraged them to pray without ceasing, and he's kind of following up on that same kind of thing. I love Rick Phillips mentions a story of, uh, told of a Roman Catholic opponent who once sent an agent to spy out Martin Luther's weaknesses and the spy came back and said, who can overcome a man who prays like this? The spy thought, I can't find a weakness in this man because he stays on his knees and he prays for us. He's saying for us, he's including himself, of course, obviously, but also Silas and Timothy, but by through association of every Christian who needs prayer. There is a wonderful, wonderful book on prayer but written by Ian e. Bounds. You've probably heard him quoted before, but you may never have read the book. Ian e. Bounds was uh, uh, jailed by the federal authorities for being a Confederate sympathizer. That experience caused him to actually join the Confederacy as a chaplain. He's from Missouri, so he likely grew up with Howard and Steve uh and uh and he, he he wrote a book he was kind of obscure he ended up uh being a pastor down in little old washington georgia you've never been to washington georgia but you see the sign the exit sign on interstate 20 and he ended up dying down there and no one really knew who he was but he left us a legacy of writing in particular about prayer ian bound says this prayer is real work prayer is vital work prayer has in its keeping the very heart of worship And it's a responsibility of absolutely every Christian from the smallest to the greatest. So we're going to look here at the content of prayer, verses 1b through 2 here. He makes a transitional statement here that he's going to go from the Thessalonians to what should be the content of the request of prayer here. As Ian Bound says, you know, we find prayer, again, we think it's so easy in so many ways. It's sort of like daydreaming towards a subject, you know, uh, daydreaming towards, uh, towards a listening ear and that kind of thing. But it's so difficult, isn't it? It's so much more. It's a conversation with someone you can't see. Uh, well, how do you learn to pray? Well, you learn to pray by praying, to be honest with you. It's good to get an e. Ben Bounds book. It's good to study the doctrine of prayer just to motivate you so you know how important it is. But how do you learn to pray? Bounds says this, praying is the best school in which to learn to pray. Prayer, the best dictionary to define the art and nature of praying. So we learn to pray. I actually heard of a, of a woman who would actually put an empty chair across from herself and pretend like she's addressing God in order to train her mind a little bit. So first of all, he prays for two things, the content of prayer. There's just two things here. First of all, success, that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you here. He doesn't pray for personal safety or health or comfort or riches or anything like that. He's consumed with the spread of the word of God, the gospel, the good news. He wants the word of God to go out. And this is the principle of church. And Churches lose track of this. Our goal is not to support political movements. Our goal is not social justice. Every goal of this church, every dollar of this church, everything that we do as this church needs to be in some way supporting the gospel to make sure that the word of the Lord goes out. Now, that manifests itself in a number of different ways, but that is the purpose of the church. There's other good organizations to do some of those other things, and we encourage you to be involved in some of those other things. But churches lose this. They want to be liked. They want to be popular. They want, to, they want to say we care. The best way we can say we care is to give them truth in a sea of lies. You're never going to see a political poster out front of this church. You're just not going to see that. And because that's not our business Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, according to Romans chapter 116. And he said, what I'm praying is that it will spread rapidly. I love this. The Greek term is really to run ahead or to speed ahead, as in a running race. And what you have here is a running race. Remember, our warfare is not against individuals. You're in sin if you hate a liberal. You're in sin if you hate someone who embraces the LBGT movement. You're in sin if you hate them. But you're... Right, if you hate the lies behind so many different movements, okay, so our race, the gospel is a is a worldview, and it's in race with all these other competing lies, these other competing worldviews in Paul's day. He was competing against Greek philosophy, Roman pride, cultic mysticism, Judaism, the Judaizers, um, uh, pagan worship, Zeus worship, everything else, uh, cultural uh, uh, cultic prostitution—you know, everything—the whole gamut of things. What, what are the worldviews the gospel is is uh, running against in our days? Well, it, it used to be it was mostly uh, we're, we're sort of fighting the liberalism within Christianity itself. And perhaps other religions—Islam, Buddhism—we we saw those as um, as uh, 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 religions of bondage instead of religions of grace and of freedom, right? But I, I would tell you t- today, probably the great worldview that we're going to have to fight and devote ourselves to fight is wokeism. Wokeism. Uh, is, is, is basically the, the fire that is, that is burning up so many organizations in our culture. And oh, basically, it's, it's Marxism uh, under the guise of tolerance. They use the great strengths of our nation, the great strengths of freedom and to- charity and love against us. And this part of it brings in this whole postmodern view that uh, basically, which is not that modern, it ca- came in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. To the point that there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute authority. I decide what is truth, I decide what is actual authority. And our church must take a stand. It has slayed its thousands with lies. And people are afraid to speak up and say, this is not true. And in many ways, a lot of churches have followed that. They want to be popular, they want to fill seats, they want to look like they care and that they love. Let me tell you, it's not loving to let someone believe a lie. Now, there's ways we need to handle that that are appropriate. Again, we we need to love the individuals that espouse those unbeliefs and everything. But this church does not need to go down the woke road. That's probably the big race right now. And it's going to become more and more desperate. And we need to be more and more sure of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to embrace, as Paul said last week, the good traditions that were handed down to us because we are consumed with prayer for the word of the Lord and that it would be glorified. Now, you know, God doesn't share his glory with another. And yet Paul says here, the word of the Lord should be glorified. God is so associated with the Bible, so associated with his written word, because the Holy Spirit wrote it, that there is a glory to the word of God that we would want to affirm. Acts chapter 13, we saw this happening in Pisidian Antioch. It says here, the Gentiles believed and began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. I actually had a a friend who went down to a monastery, and this friend was a Protestant. He's a a, a genuine believer, and he wanted some rest, so he went to a monastery, I think the one Monk's Corner, down towards Charleston. And one of the priests there said, the reason why we, we, we don't believe in what you believe is because you actually worship the Bible. You actually worship the Bible. Uh, and, and of course his response was you know the other thing is we actually read it but uh, he didn't say that uh, no we don't worship the bible we worship the God who wrote the bible but he was the word the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we want the word to be glorified we want the, the word to be magnified we want it to be on our hearts we want it to be on our lips we want it to define absolutely everything we do in this service of worship and everything we do in the office of this church from from uh, Monday to Saturday. The word of the Lord needs to be glorified. And he grows back to them, he kind of goes back to their own personal testimony, just as it did with you also. Let me just refresh your memories, how this worked. And we need to see these examples sometimes because, frankly, we don't see a lot of conversions, do we? Uh, And we question some of those ones we see. They they seem to be just sometimes very emotional, whatever. And we we groan for the Lord. We pray for a a great revival in the churches and a great awakening in the culture where where thousands of people come to know the Lord, just like has happened in years past. Well, it, it has happened before, and it can happen again. It happened in Thessalonica. That's what Paul is bringing them back to. Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had traveled through Amphilius and Ampolia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Now, what's interesting is Paul is writing this from Corinth. We also have an example of what the Lord did in Corinth. If you go on, you look at the illustration of what happened there uh, in his uh, prayer here. Uh, uh, kind of referring back to, uh, he's, he's asking for this prayer, and we see that answer to this prayer in Acts chapter 18. God began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Same kind of principles there. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There is a point in time where God does not allow you to repent. That's why for those of you who are not Christians, you need to become a Christian today. You may not have the opportunity tomorrow. And he left and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. There's a great revival of Corinth here. And the Lord said to Paul in the night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. You know, there's just this great movement uh, uh, that that probably would not have happened, these great conversions wouldn't have happened in Corinth, wouldn't have happened in Thessalonica Lyca, if Christians weren't praying. That's one, is one one of the great principles we need to have, is that the word of the Lord would go forth. One commentator says this, since the gospel requires the Holy Spirit's working to open the hearts of those who would otherwise never believe, Paul knew that prayer is needed for the gospel to speed ahead and to glorify God. People will take a worldview, and they will take the worldview that's handed to them. And the predominant worldview now, as I mentioned before, is wokeism. And and they are deliberately attacking and trying to target children. So what we need to do is give children the truth so that they can recognize the error of what's going on. Ian Bounds wrote, without prayer, the gospel can never be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out and his work cannot progress without him. So we see this success with the gospel is one of the contents of the prayer. The next one is deliverance, that we would be rescued from perverse and evil men For not all have faith here. Again, he has talked about the ultimate Antichrist that's coming. But one of the things we know from Scripture is there are many Antichrists, many people who are opposed to Christianity, opposed to the work of God on planet Earth. It goes all the way back again to the garden. Cain killed Abel. The the first child ever born actually, in a sense, became an Antichrist, opposed to God's movement, became a perverse and evil person. John tells us in Second John 1, 7, many deceivers have gone out into this world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. The idea of per- perverse is really actually means more like unreasonable or, or out of place. Uh, and it's connected here with those who are evil, those who are aggressively uh, wicked. Uh, there, there's an unreasonableness about other worldviews. Now, haven't you found that to be true? I mean, with this postmodern idea that it's against the meta narrative, and everybody defines their own truth as being so embraced in the media. It started in many ways of the uh, uh, higher education, where you can decide who you are, uh, despite whatever uh, you were created to be. Literally, I think in the last few weeks, there, there, there's, there, there's got to be this coming movement where people are identifying as being handicapped. Have you read about this? A man, I think it was in Great Britain, cut off his arm because he believed that he should be handicapped and not have an arm. So he removed his own arm. A woman, I think she was up in the New England area, blinded herself with bleach because she identified as a blind person. It's so unreasonable. But that's one of the big challenges. People are not taught to reason. Everything has to do with emotions and what I feel and I decide truth. Folks, we have in the book in your lap is ultimate truth. We believe in absolutes. And you need to have this because you, you, can't, you can't fight just another opinion with another opinion. You need to be able to ground your feet upon the basic truths of, the, people, of, of the, the one who created this universe. But you have to know those truths. And people will try to shame you away from those truths. But what you need to say is in a loving way. Again, you don't hate them; you hate the message that, they're, that they believe. Thus saith the Lord. I don't know if you'd re- use the word "thus." That might <laughs> calm off a little, a little cold. But there are truths here, and this is what Paul is talking about here in this running race against worldviews. Here, you're going to be going against those people who are perverse. So pray pray to be protected from them. They are both perverse, unreasonable, and evil. They have bad, impure motives. And he mentions here, not all have faith. Well, we understand that principle, do we not? You know, most people know John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will not perish. We understand that. Most people stop there, though, don't they? Have you, have you continued to read in the book of John? Let me tell you what comes next after John 3.16. Now, we love John 3.16. We use John 3.16. John 3.16 is inspired, but so is John 3.18-20. through 20. He who believes in him is not judged. He does not believe him has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear. That his deeds will be exposed. I mean most of y'all are southerners. You know what it's like on a July day. You go into your kitchen. Six o'clock in the morning trying to get your coffee. You know the sun's barely up. You turn on the lights. And. Palmetta bugs, pew, you know, pew. or at least a palmetta bug, or maybe they're outside your windows, but they hate the light, don't they? Roaches hate the light, they love the darkness. They can nibble on your cinnamon bun in the darkness without being seen, you know. But if the light comes on, well, I mean, again, we don't hate the roaches, we hate what the roaches believe, But light, but that's why Christians have been persecuted. I, that illustration really broke down. Um, I, I thought I was on a roll, and I really kind of... Uh, anyway, we, we now I can't remember what I was going to say. Well, I tell you what, here's a good idea. Let's go back to the text. Um, God answered this prayer to the Apostle Paul in Corinth. He answered this prayer. And this is beautiful because he's asking them, Hey, would you pray for me? I'm writing from Corinth. Will you please pray for me these two things? And God answers this. Acts chapter 18. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, perverse and evil men, and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, I love the detail Luke puts in it. Because you can kind of see there's this mob comes in before this uh, Roman uh, pro-council. And Paul's about to go, (gasps) he says... Uh, uh, Paul was about to open his mouth Gallio said to the Jews if there's a matter of wrong of vicious crime O Jews it would be reasonable for me there's reason again for me to put up with you but if there are questions about words and names and your own law look after yourselves I am unwilling to be judge of these matters and he drove them away I assume with guards or whatever from the judgment seat and they all took Sothecese the leader of the synagogue and began to beating him in front of the judgment seat but Gallio was not concerned about any of these things not only did, 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 did uh, God answer the prayers of the Thessalonians to protect from perverse and evil men, He let the perverse and evil men get the snot beat out of them in front of the judgment seat. I, I do regret saying that word snot, but He did. I mean, this is a, this is almost comical, right? We're gonna go, we're gonna go destroy Christianity, and then right there, the, the, the leader, the ringleader of the mob that was going against Paul, ends up being humiliated publicly, and everybody turns on him. It's interesting, though, we see these answers to prayer, but you know, often God did not answer Paul's prayer. One of the beautiful things about Paul is Paul embraced no. He embraced no, because he knew in some way God had a better plan than to answer specifically what he wants. So in the end of Romans, you know, remember Paul said, Now urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I might be rescued uh, 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 from those uh, who are disobedient Judea, and that my service of Jer- for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to saints, so that they may come to the joy and the will of God in refreshing rest in your company. Okay, do you, remember, do you remember the rest of the book of Acts? So Paul's asking the Romans, he says, listen, uh, if you would pray for me, I'm about to take all these donations from all the Gentile churches and we're going to go take it to Jerusalem for famine relief. And my hope is that's going to be something to bridge Jew and Gentile together. The great mystery revealed that the fulfillment of Pentecost, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham is actually happening uh, in Achaia, in Macedonia, uh, in Asia. And the Gentiles are coming, they're, they're forsaking this worship. So we're going to show them that, that for your generosity, okay? In a sense, it was answered. Paul was able to take that donation, lay it before the fit of the, uh, of the, uh, the apostles of the church. But in another sense, it was not answered. Remember, does anybody remember what happened? He goes to pray. There's a mob that comes up. There's this man preaches against Moses. They beat him. The, the, uh, the centurion has to come in with the guard. They take him to Caesarea. He's imprisoned for two years Finally, in, in a sense, desperation, he appeals to Caesar. He gets on a ship. He's shipwrecked on the way. Then he survives the shipwreck, and he gets bitten by a rattlesnake that came out of a fire. And what does Paul say about that? What does Paul say about that? Well, we know in Philippians, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Shipwreck, imprisonment, snakebite, it's all worked out because you know what? I'm under guard by the Praetorian Guard, the elite of the elite of the Roman army. The same people who protect the Caesar appear to be, that's that's the way I read it. They're guarding him and he's sharing the gospel and they're getting saved. The purple wearing Praetorian Guard are all getting saved. It would be like the, it would be like, what would it be like? The Rangers, the Navy SEALs, the Delta Force of our military or the ones that are most powerful, most influential, are all becoming Christians. Wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have been a prisoner. Now, Paul doesn't speak about unanswered prayer in this thing, but, but this comes up every time we talk about prayer, doesn't it? But what about all the times that God said no to me? What are the times things have not turned out the way there's a, there's a beautiful, beautiful confidence that we ought to have in this. Our, our tendency is to pray for ideal circumstances. The right job, the right health, the right, right relationship, the right mortgage payment, whatever it might be. And those are fine. It's fine to pray for those things. But what you really don't want is ideal circumstances. What you really want is to have the kind of character where the circumstances don't matter. And looking around, and with all the praying that I've been praying for you, uh, get, that's where a lot of you are right now. A lot of you are in difficult circumstances, and God is creating in you the kind of character that says circumstances don't matter. It's going to work out for the better progress of the gospel. We had a hymn sing last week. Um, the Headleys led us in a hymn sing, and Nancy reminded me of this amazing hymn. that we. That's probably the first time we've ever sung it from John Newton. Listen to these words, because this also includes, by the way, your struggle with sin. And we're going to sing this later on, too. But I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answered my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul on every part. Yea, more than his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Cross all my fair designs I schemed. Cast out my feelings. Laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And God answers. Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. You see, his goal is the progress of the gospel. And if that means... No, in your prayers, then that's exactly what we want. And that's what we should embrace. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is you're a sinner, but God's a savior. You don't understand grace until you have failed multiple, multiple times. And have heard that no to your prayers multiple, multiple, multiple times. And then he has a confidence in prayer here. He goes here. It's a great transition here. But the Lord is faithful. is in contrast with all those who do not have faith. This, of course, is a reflection. Paul being the Old Testament scholar that he is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Know therefore the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him for their, to their faces to destroy them. So what specifically is the Lord faithful for? Well, he will, goes on to say he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Now, who's the evil one? What's well, the devil, right? Satan. It's actually, this is actually a, a, a good use of the Greek here. You know, when we say the Lord's Prayer and we say, you know, uh, deliver us from evil. Really, that probably should be translated deliver us from the evil one. It recognizes the great Satan is not some representative of the evil that's in the world. He is a real being. With real demons falling after him, who really, really wants to destroy the church, and he absolutely hates you because God loves you. So you're a target of Satan. Maybe not the number one Satan. There's probably some minor demon that he's assigned to you, but they're there. They're there. You don't believe it? Become a pastor and experience Saturdays and Mondays. They're there. So what do we do? Well, he is going to strengthen and protect you from the evil one. This is right in keeping with, with Jude's benediction, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of the glory blameless and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Not only does God have the power to protect you from Satan, he has the power to bring you before himself in person blameless blameless and you experiencing great joy and he says it goes on to say we have confidence in the Lord concerning you now again he's not confident in their ability to pray he is not saying well you know if you pray this formula it's all going to work out he knows what no means we've already talked about that so again we need to have this kind of confidence I think some of his confidence might come again from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 55. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, how high is the heavens above the earth? So are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without water in the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the water, so... My word will, which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it for you for you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth in shouts and joy before me and all the trees of the field will clap their hands The Lord is largely silent. He speaks through his word. So when you're struggling with difficulties, go back to Isaiah 55. He is working his purposes out. Just as rain comes, and we know a lot about rain because it rains every Sunday morning at 1030. We know a lot about rain. It accomplishes work. I can't believe how green my backyard is right now. Just so rich and green. The exact same thing happens with God's word, but he uses your prayers. To be able to answer those prayers. That you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Again, the, the, the power of prayer is that God changes us. We're not out there trying to manipulate God or get him to change his mind. It's not going to happen. What he does is he changes us in this prayer. Ian Bounds, again, in the treasure of prayer, says this. Prayer is solemn service due to God, an adoration of worship, an approach to God for some request, the presenting of some desire, the expression of some need to him who supplies all need and who satisfies all desires, who as the father finds his greatest pleasure in revealing the wants and granting the desires of his children. And notice the emphasis here is that you do what the command. There's an emphasis on obedience. And I've often said that if you were to sum up Christianity in one word, it would be grace. And, and, And the older you get, I think the more you appreciate grace because you've not turned out to be the kind of person you wanted to be. And yet, we can, in a sense, maybe overemphasize grace if we also don't emphasize that grace is realized and enjoyed through obedience. You can't be quenching the Holy Spirit all the time and keep just expecting grace. There is a command here. There are laws that we are to complete, we are to, uh, to follow in. So he emphasizes here this idea of commandment. Okay, you're under all this wonderful things. You're gonna, God's going to answer your prayer but you need to do these things that we command you. Now, he, re- he mentions this. and He mentions it gently because he's about to come down on them. Because remember, one of the problems in, Th- in Thessalonica is you had all these people who believe that Christ has already come back or that he's going to come back any time. So they were basically had uh, they were just sponging off the rest of the church. And we're going to address that, uh, Lord, Lord willing, next week. But he's, he's going to have to come down on those who are leading an undisciplined life. So he wants to know that he, that he wants to emphasize their command and that they have confidence that they're going to end up obeying what the Lord does. Why? Because going back to 1 Thessalonians, faithful is he who calls you, he will also bring it to pass. Now we see the, the character of prayer here in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, as one commentator says here, uh, everything after verse three is what God is doing for us to change us. He will establish us. He will guard us. He will cause us to obey his word. He will direct our hearts to the word and the steadfastness of Jesus. The idea of direct here is that he's going to make straight. He's going to make straight a path for us to be able to to love the Lord. He will answer that prayer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your, your mom, your dad, your granddad and your little your little five year old daughter comes up? And and, and looks you now. Can you please teach me how I can love you more? Wow. Well, that's what God's saying. God will teach us how to love Him more, and He is so honored when you say, "Lord, help direct us more towards this love of God." It's much like uh, the closing of Hebrews and the benediction in Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, essentially, this notice this, he says here the love of God, and this is one of those Greek things, but commentators uh, point out that th- th- this could either be an objective or a subjective genitive. Of course, you, when I said that, you were thinking, is that an objective or a subjective genitive? I'm warning to myself, well, let me help you here. It could be either. It could be either. It could be, there's a deliberate, I think, ambiguity here. It could be the love that God has for the believer or the believer's love for God. Yes, <laughs> both are important. We need to recognize the love that God has for us and we need to pour out more love towards him. Again, James Grant says here uh, that prayer is about uh, uh, not about changing God or his plan. Prayer is about changing us and getting us in line with God's plan. The Lord is faithful. And then we want, the other thing is we want to be into the steadfastness of Christ. We, uh, again, here's another one of these things that's a little ambiguous here. Uh, but is it, the, is it the, the God's steadfastness with us or the believer's steadfastness in Christ? It is both. That's really, really more than anything what you want is let me just stay steadfast with Christ. No matter what happens. Because you know what? The yes prayers can be as big a temptation as the no prayers, can't they? If you don't think prosperity can be a burden, look at our country. A lot of the sins our country commits that you don't see going on in China or Russia or some of these other countries are sins of prosperity. People have all this leisure time to sit around and decide that they want to be handicapped, for instance. So our prayer is, let me stay steadfast with Christ. Ian Bounds says, prayer is the condition by which all foes are to be overcome and all the inheritance is to be possessed. Going back to the New England Primer, there's a prayer in there by John Rogers. John Rogers was a pastor. He was the first martyr under Bloody Mary. Uh, when Mary came in, she was Catholic. She wanted to destroy all the Protestants, and she burned some 300 of them at the stake. Uh, if you want to know more about that, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. But John Rogers was taken to the cross at Smithfield and burned at the stake on February 14th, 1557. He had nine small children, including a nursing baby, and his children and his wife, with the baby at the breast, walked him to the cross and saw him burned in front of everybody. Knowing that it was going to happen, he left his children a prayer. He went to the cross, and faith didn't, didn't sweat. But he left them a legacy of prayer that was included in the New England Primer because he was held up as one who, was, uh, who fought the good fight of faith and who God brought into glory. Part of that prayer says this. Be thank always writing again to his children, be always thankful to the Lord with prayer and with praise, begging of him to bless your work and to direct your ways, picking up from 2nd Thessalonians. Seek first, I say, the living God and always him adore, and then be sure that he will bless your basket and your store. And I beseech, Almighty God, replenish you with grace that I may meet you in, he- in the heavens and see you face to face. I want to pray like that. I want to pray like that. So let's go to school on Paul's prayer and learn to be and to have those kind of prayers and be that kind of prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you and just uh, we, we, if we were to confess The spiritual disciplines we are so lacking in, the list may be numerous, but prayer is certainly going to be at the top. And in fact, this church will not do much if we do not become and are and maintain a praying church. So I pray, God, that you would help us to understand just how important prayer is, important enough for the apostle to ask these baby Christians to pray for him. No one is above prayer. Let us be a praying people. Let us be a people on our knees. And let us just marvel at what you do with us and with our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.